why did I come through this maps of meaning track mm -hmm. to get into Bitcoin and the stories and, and everything else that we're covering in here? Nowhere is it mentioning, first of all, praxeology, Austrian economics. None of that right. gets actually touched on. But of course, it's not a Bitcoin book. It came out before Bitcoin yep. existed. <laughs> but it does touch on concepts that are reflected. Yes. And something like Bitcoin fits in perfectly mm -hmm. as this stabilizing map, uh, a map of the world that we can all share. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Luke, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. Great to have you. We are continuing our journey <clears throat> into Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning. And last time we were looking at the Mesopotamian creation myth uh, and sort of dissecting the architecture of that story. Um, and this time we're going to be looking at some parallels to that myth in Egyptian mythology, starting with a story about Osiris and Seth. Where should we jump into this particular story? Yeah, well, where we left it last time with the Mesopotamian myth, that is a great story to introduce us to the characters, as I like to call them the domains of order, chaos, the, the hero, all that. It, it's it's a great story, but the, the thing about this is humanity is iterating 
on that story constantly, bringing in the most key elements of that, telling different versions of this hero story. And sometimes these stories tell us some other things, something a little bit deeper. And the Egyptian story, I really like this one. And I, I think I, I understand why this one was chosen here. It iterates and goes a bit deeper on what it means to be a hero and also draws some parallels with, I think, some other story elements that will be familiar. So yeah, just kind of diving in again with a bit of a cast of characters here. Uh, there is a god called Osiris, and maybe these names are a little bit more familiar. Uh, I, I don't know. Egyptian mythology might be a little more mm. mainstream, mm. Uh, so I suppose, than the uh, than the Mesopotamian version. But uh, Osiris and his son Horus are kind of the main characters here. And Osiris is the god that represents the culture. So we're we're skipping ahead a little bit. We're not talking about the exact creation. Um, Dr. Peterson gets into that uh, a little bit, what the Egyptians kind of believed uh, on that point. But the story itself starts with Osiris. So Osiris is the, the god of the known, the, the great father. And Osiris has an evil brother called Set or Seth. And to start this off, basically, this this evil brother, hostile brother, this is this is a common archetypal story. Mm. It's it's covered in the Bible. Dr. Peterson talks about it a lot in his his Genesis series, even. Mm. So the Cain and Abel story is the hostile brothers story. And uh well and and if if you're familiar with that one with Cain slaying Abel it's mm. it's not necessarily like a an exactly clear story of which brothers the good one and the evil one it, or at least it's not set up like that exactly like that this one it's it's pretty much clear o Osiris is the the domain of order and Seth is his hostile brother the mm. the adversary and interestingly here, the closest parallel that, that I can think of, and I think it's even named in, in some of these uh, lecture series, is the, the Lion King. Mm. The Lion King with with the head king, lion, and then the evil uncle, basically. M and Mufasa, and I can't remember the uncle's name. Scar. Scar. Scar, that's right. Yeah, very... Um, on the nose with the symbolism and they even um they they talk about how the the domain of the king lion is everything that the light touches but mm, right. everywhere outside of that that the darkness is in that's yeah it's pretty on the nose with the symbolism uh, disney prior to the year 2000 was was pretty good about these uh storytelling even maybe a little bit beyond that but uh i know definitely the disney i grew up with was uh was uh, something I would show my kids. For yes, example. exactly. Um, just a, I guess, kind of a shameless plug. We did one episode about this called um, the, what was it called? The power of story, the power of myth. We aired it on the channel and it went into the, some of this hidden architecture of storytelling. So films that are good have these mythological themes embedded within them. And even if it's, it doesn't have to be a conscious awareness, like you just brought up the Lion King, 
<clears throat> I had no idea watching The Lion King as a kid. It had some Egyptian mythology baked into it. Yet, obviously, it was a really good and successful film. Um, and we also go through some films that sort of lack that mythological architecture. And we have this implicit or tacit sense that the movie is not good. It's just, it's bad. And so there's, it's very interesting how these stories, or at least the themes in these stories, resonate with us at some deep unconscious level and they repeat in multiple different artistic mediums like film literature etc yeah absolutely and i, I mean I, I think the the thing about this is the inspiration that goes into these these good films when it comes from the right place yeah you have no idea and and the the main thing here i, I think with the the egyptian story it's it's not necessarily the only inspiration for the the Lion King, but it it's a great parallel to it. And I, I think anyone who's seen the movie now would be able to picture what the the characters are in this story. And so, kind of getting back into it, one one point that I'll I'll specifically make here. Um, okay, so Osiris was a primeval king, a legendary ancestral figure who ruled Egypt wisely and fairly. His evil brother Seth, whom he did not understand, rose up against him. So there's there's a couple of specific things here. First first of all, ruling wisely and fairly. So this is an ideal picture here. This is this is when order is working correctly. But the thing about this is everything is moving. The 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 world doesn't doesn't stand still mm -hmm. just for something good happening, right? So Seth represents the adversary. Those things that crop up within the domain of order that go against that order existing properly. And this can go down to as simple a level as people have competing motivations, right? Mm -hmm. And the, I mean, a lot of this comes down to the scarcity of resources and uh, even unequal allocation of, of capital, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, which could be exacerbated by a uh, monetary system, for example. Mm -hmm. But the, the the thing about this is the king did not understand his his evil brother. He did not understand what was going on there. So, what this what this is getting at is that the order, the system of order, was good enough to set itself up, but is not always going to be good enough to mm. sustain itself mm. without without adapting to new things. So, mm. Seth represents something new that it could not overcome so skipping well not skipping but the the next part of the story it, if it's... i could just add one thing there um just as i've tried to reflect on kind of the nature of evil and you know it seems a lot of people say things like oh well if if god exists then why is there evil in the world you know why do horrible things happen etc cetera, etc cetera. but it seems like there might actually be a functional purpose, which is like what you're describing here is there's just a certain order has emerged, but it lacks a resilience to certain forms of evil, right? Like the king did not understand the evil, the adversary, the evil brother. And so the evil that is channeled through the brother serves like as a, a test of the integrity of the structure of good itself, almost like to use a software development methodologies like quality assurance testing, right? It's like, oh, you built this thing. Now we need to try to hack it and destroy it to see how 
uh, strong and integral it actually is. So it's not it's not to say there's a justification for evil. Like not clearly, you don't. It's not making a moral justification. It's just talking about maybe the functional purpose of its existence. Um, so anyway, that's just kind of a, a a perspective I've been thinking about. I don't know how right or wrong it is, but well, it also depends on who, what's your definition of evil. Mm-hmm. What is evil to whom, right? It's always it's always about perspective. Yes, everyone is the hero in their own journey, right? Mm-hmm. And no one thinks that they're evil except maybe the odd psychopath here or there uh, with some self awareness. Yeah. But the the thing about this is the evilness, so called, in this story is that there is opposition to the existing order, mm-hmm. and I don't put a moral judgment on that either. It's it's just more like it's it's coming against the existing order and. Right. In in the case of a tyranny, maybe that's a good thing. If someone wants to overthrow the evil empire, right, something like that, that 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 would be a positive uh, way of putting this, right? You would have a hero going against mm-hmm. the tyranny, but in this case, it's it's a good state of affairs, a good mm. king going up against an adversary. It's explicitly called evil in this story, but maybe it's only evil because it's going against the good thing that currently exists. That's right? an, an excellent point that there's a, it's a matter of perspective, the difference between a hero and a usurper, right? It's they're, they're both there to go against the established order in some way, but is it a matter? Are they good or are they evil? Are they, he, are they the hero or are they the villain? I mean, that's a matter of perspective. Yeah, maybe these stories are telling us something about what that perspective means. Like again, with with if if everyone thinks they're the hero, right? But then you get down to the motivations and the consequences, mm-hmm. right? If someone's motivations are purely selfish, most people would say that that's that's not good necessarily. But what if the what if the consequences are extremely good? I mean, uh, just off the top of my head, like if if people consider billionaires selfish, and I'm talking to Elon Musk's and the Bezos's and all this of the world, but they create things that Mm. affect the lives of people in a generally positive way, tremendously, tremendously well. I mean, those examples might not be specifically the best, but Amazon has connected people around the world, uh, made it possible to to get goods around the world very quickly right and um elon musk has his own interesting things and uh if selfishness is what's driving them well maybe the outcome is is still <clears throat> positive right yeah but and yeah i because uh, well, we touched on this last time again just to maybe mix in the libertarian philosophy here it's i think self-interestedness is good obviously we need that's well, not good. It is ineradicable, right? Like we're all self-interested. All life forms are self-interested to some extent. But the the actual ethical question for humans is when does that self-interestedness cross the line into selfishness? And I think libertarians would draw that line at person and property, right? Once you start to coerce someone or take their stuff or hurt them or threaten to hurt them, that you've crossed that ethical line. And um just to mix in one, because we talked a lot last time about wisdom and how it being mixed with 
a reverence for the limitations of knowledge, a general uh, attitude of humility towards the complexity of reality, like you, you can't know it all. To give a definition of evil, because we said evil and good is kind of a matter of perspective. I love um, Friedman, Paradise Lost. He wrote that evil is the force which believes his knowledge is complete. And so it's it's that prideful, arrogant, um, totalizing knowledge, right? The totalitarian attitude that tends to be regarded as evil in general. Exactly. And and understanding the motivations for why someone would want that is is hard, you know. It's uh but it plays out in the world all the time and and maybe in in stories it can be a little bit clear what is good what is evil right but again you take that into onto the world stage even like yeah, current uh, current events not to not to dive too deeply into this but uh uh i i would be surprised if vladimir putin doesn't think he's doing the right thing for himself sure. and his his country right yeah um so so it's it's hard to get that perspective, but I think what the stories end up telling us here is that it's about the consequences. It's yes. about why it's not it's not exactly about the motivation. It's it's about what is the effect, and I think that's a, that's a very good point here. And the what the story then gets into here is that the character of Osiris dies and goes into the underworld, and the implication here is that this great kingdom is now gone the uh the in the entire setup of the the state the culture like we talked about last time this this is all gone now it's descended into the underworld into chaos and so the the idea there is well that there can be unforeseen things that a form of order doesn't know how to handle and the consequences can be drastic that the ultimate stakes is that it goes away right um obviously that's not going to be the end of the story here but that's the result right now is that the domain of order was not able to handle the adversary and at least temporarily it's into chaos so some chaotic yeah. event occurring right yeah, so there's new information being channeled into the established order through the adversary, something like that. Like he's found a weak point or a chink in the armor. Yeah, like uh, something that was not not accounted for um, right. in the in the domain of order, right? And and I think I think the other point here is that that can never be the case, right? We can never have absolutely everything taken care of and it's how we adapt to these interactions that yes. that as individuals and as societies we can move forward and and i think i also want to be clear about this story too this this really is is giving implications on a societal level this story specifically and maybe getting into the next phase of this will help to bring this forward here and if we're if we're tracking pages there's there's a really good set of of diagrams here pages 129, 130, 131, uh, that show a, a lot of these character actions happening right now. So what I'm going to go into here, uh, first of all, is that um, 
So Osiris, Osiris has a wife and her name is Isis, Isis. And this was a, a very common name, not very, but somewhat common name before the uh, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria took that acronym. But uh, originally that the name would have been from this Egyptian goddess. And she's the counterpart to Osiris in, in the strictest sense, as in she's the queen to his king. She is the aspect of the great mother that is positive and creative. So she possessed great magical powers, says here. Uh, and well, so what, what happens is she ventures into the underworld, finds the body of Osiris. It's actually a whole bunch of scattered pieces. And she makes herself pregnant with his dead phallus. So that's nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the word used here. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the, the thing about this, there, there's, there's a really specific point here is that when the degeneration of either the self or the, he, he uses the word state, the domain of order descends into chaos, then there is a potential to make something positive out of that situation. So pulls it right back into sort of the, the um, either the hero story or the ideas of mundane everyday life, something unexpected happens. Well, maybe you can do something positive with that. Mm -hmm. Right. So in, in this case, she, the the goddess, the great mother, becomes pregnant with the remains of the so-called dead great father and bears a son. Mm -hmm. The son is Horus. And the symbol of Horus is, again, the eye. Mm. So that's, again, with this the symbology there, what, what we touched on last time with Marduk, that yes. eye surrounding his head and all this. Well, Horus, the and this symbol... Is the, this is the eye on the back of the dollar bill, right? It's the exact eye on the back yeah. of the dollar bill. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The eye of Horus is is the symbol of Egyptian mythology. It's the thing you can you can probably picture it in your head if you've ever seen an Egyptian mm. style picture. This this eye, it's everywhere. Mm. Uh, and the the thing about this, the the level of detail, uh, by the way, in this this story, at least in the book here, isn't as as high as with the Marduk story. Uh, so it it really just hits the the high points basically. So what, what happens is Horus then goes to fight a battle with Seth. So Horus is the new generation, the son of Osiris and Isis, the son of the great mother and the great father, and he is the hero. So then he goes and fights the adversary. And, well, skipping right to the end because the story does it, um, Horus loses an eye in the process, but he defeats the adversary, defeats Seth. So Horus recovers the eye, and then he rejuvenates it with the help of some other god, not really important, uh, but he recovers the eye. So, okay, pause. Mm -hmm. This is the, the part where the Marduk story ended, right? So in the Marduk story, Marduk defeats the Tiamat. dragon of chaos. Yeah, Tiamat. No. And 
then he becomes king god and is the exemplar for all generations the emperor the is emperor, in his yeah. image yeah. yep so this is the end of this story so seth was not the same character as tiamat first mm -hmm. of all just to be just to be clear seth was part of the domain of order tiamat mm -hmm. was part of the domain of chaos the unknown and those aren't those aren't uh distinctions that are uh, unimportant they, they are important distinctions for what they mean and are telling us but the point is here this is where the marduk story ended and now this is the point where the egyptian story gets more interesting mm. but and any comments on kind of this little cycle so far um no i there was something you said earlier and this is just an aside um but i've heard you're familiar with jonathan pajot yeah, I really like that guy. Yeah. yeah, so he's got a podcast called The Symbolic World, I think. And we were just talking about the nature of evil earlier. And I don't know enough about this to say, but you said something to the effect that there was something unaccounted for, right? That when the, the adversary came into the established order, he um, sort of um, revealed that something wasn't accounted for. That was kind of the... Uh, the weak point, the chink in the armor, as we said, right? And that term triggered a, a, a memory in me that I had heard Pajot talk about the nature of evil and it's what's sometimes called the remainder. And like, a, and so in a mathematical sense, if you divide something, you know, um, well, the classic 666, right? 6.66 is 6.66 forever, right? 6.667 you round up to seven that's a remainder in mathematics but he was describing how evil consists in that remainder and that's actually why 666 is used uh as one of those numbers that there's something that evil identifies what is un unaccounted for in the structure of the good something like that so i just wanted to mix that in i don't know have a lot to say about it but i've just heard him talk about it before um so we've got you know Evil being the force which believes its knowledge is complete, but it's also identifying incomplete knowledge inside of the structure, the good structure, something like that. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah, Jonathan Pajot is really interesting. Another one of the the people that, yeah, through Doctor Peterson, yeah, he's he's great. And uh, no, that's that's a, that's a fascinating piece there. And I mean, to to bring this into a little bit more of a mundane approach right at some point uh, and at some point someone has to have come up with that idea right mm -hmm. because the funny thing about all this stuff all this all this mythology and what it means mm -hmm. on some level there is someone a human intuiting this stuff mm -hmm. and transmitting these ideas right they didn't come out of absolutely nothing and and in fact most likely they they are the buildup over centuries of little stories, right? Maybe even as simple as uh, caveman X uh, went and take, took down the saber-toothed tiger that had been killing a whole bunch of people, and here's how he did it and all this. And then 16 generations later, it's the hero myth after you yeah. mix it with a whole bunch of other little hero myths, right? And so yeah. this symbology thing, I just think people who come up with, with this stuff, like... I don't know if that's the, that's a totally novel thing from from Jonathan Pajot. I, I assume he's he's drawing on uh, 
some other yes pool of knowledge there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was reference. It's not. I don't think it was an original idea. He was referring to some thinkers before him. Um, but yeah, that process you just described—that is the iteration you're talking about earlier, right? It's we observe ourselves acting across time. We see people facing uncertainty. Uh, you know, applying different beliefs, approaches, virtues, skills, and then those stories or the, 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 that sequence of events is recorded as story. And we do that over and over again. And then eventually you have a bunch of stories and we start abstracting general principles out of all of those stories. And that eventually is distilled down into a hero myth, basically. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and one. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send Chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. So again, we're back to that data compression thing where we're observing ourselves acting across long spans of time and extracting out the general principles which can guide future action. That is basically mythology. Right. And, and before there was writing this stuff all had to be transmitted orally. And yes. some of the last oral transmitted mythologies were all done through poetry, basically. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that uh, at least a structured set of yeah. words is easier to remember than yes. prose. Right? And it was kind of song-like too, right? Uh, Il the Iliad and the Odyssey, they kind of have a, they have a rhythm to them. So it makes it easier to uh, transmit through memory. Exactly. One of the coolest examples that I personally came across was the uh, the Finnish Kalevala, which uh, was was really only compiled in about the mid eight eighteen hundreds, mm -hmm. and 
the thing was there there was examples of of people there would always be two guys uh facing each other and they would they would sing together to each other these these verses and there's there's uh, on youtube you can you can find it how they would how they would have done that and uh there's examples all all across cultures i i spoke with um uh, this guy's name is uh, Thomas Ronakari, but his his name uh, his his uh, his musical uh, uh, name is Shaman Violin. That's his musical project. But uh, the reason I spoke with him was because he's a ethnomusicologist, and he went out to people in Siberia and was learning about their musical religious traditions. And basically, this stuff was all happening right down to the present. Right, so. When this stuff was getting transmitted orally, it was always the key information, mm. basically. So, mm. yeah, th that that's just a, a little rabbit hole and part of the, I don't know, the body of this stuff that that I really get into. Yeah, it was the central axis of culture before writing, right? It's like that was the, you know, before people were building cathedrals and things like that. That was kind of the the cathedral, if you will, right? The, the central story that gets passed over time. Exactly. And, and, and so that's how we get this stuff. That's how we get into these stories. And so kind of to get back into it. Now we're getting into the part that, that is the innovation with this Egyptian story. And so coming back to it, Horus has just defeated Seth. The Horus, the hero has defeated Seth, the adversary, and he's lost an eye, but recovered it and this eye is the symbol the eye of horus is the the symbol on the u.s dollar bill it's everywhere in egyptian mythology a, a light aside to this is that the the eye has something to do with the egyptian death ritual mm. but that part is sort of set aside in this telling of it um but there are other eye symbolisms in in other cultures that are a bit interesting that that um yeah i think i think i'll touch on just in a bit here but um what horace does differently is he volunteer voluntarily descends into the underworld to find his father so he is super important he he goes in voluntarily and and the connection that dr peterson makes here is that the parallel is that Marduk voluntarily journeyed to defeat to the underworld to defeat Tiamat, and then Horus voluntarily journeyed into the underworld to find his father. But these are two fundamentally different things. One is a a journey of destruction; the other is a journey of mm. discovery, creation. Mm -hmm. So Horus finds Osiris, his father, the symbol of order, and he offers his recovered eye to his father so that he can see again. And then the two of them return victorious. They return united and victorious and established a revivified kingdom. That's mm. the quote there. So the kingdom of the son and father is an improvement over that of the father alone or of the son alone. Yes. In other words, the son has to go recollect the wisdom of the father, mm. the collective memory of all of the wisdom that came before him. And he then adds his own new information that was able to defeat the adversary and the entire culture can move into the future. Yes. Together. So this is a story of 
the adaptive capacity to deal with new information going into the future. That's, that's amazing. You know, what's coming up for me there is like that describes the process of civilization itself, right? That at the core, at the bedrock of civilization, we have these ideally very firmly established principles, right? Rule of law, moral codes, cultural norms, you know, like today, for instance, we just take it for granted that people can own things. Individuals can own things, right? You can own a car. It's my house, my car, my bank account. That wasn't a cultural norm 2000 years ago, right? There used to be kind of a patriarchal structure that governed. The father told everyone what to do inside of the household. The individual children uh, couldn't own property privately. The father owned everything, basically. So you have that sort of conservative structure at the core. But then at the edges, as you said earlier, the world never stands still. Things are constantly changing. We're constantly figuring out new ways to solve problems. We're constantly facing new problems. So we need some adaptive capacity at the edges, which is represented by the sun here. So the sun's trip to the underworld, I guess, is the unification of those two structures, right? He's He's gone into the... the He's gone into uncertainty. He's mapped new territory, explored new territory, and now he's re returning that knowledge to the cultural order itself and thereby extending and expanding culture. And that's the same way we extend and expand civilization, right? It's the, the accrual of knowledge over time, um, which becomes manifested as new innovations, new capital, et cetera. So it's just, it's amazing how deep this story is that it's describing like the fundamental human enterprise it's just amazing yeah and the funny thing is it, there's almost nothing here it's it, it's not this story i'm sure has some great explanations of of where this came from but the level of detail in in maps of meaning there there isn't much here it's just the, the key points but there's there's so much there as you say and um, the thing is like there's there's implications on a couple of other levels here too for the individual the implication here is that everyone has to deal with their past. Not, and I don't mean just their personal past. I mean the the entire human race as a whole. Each individual has to deal with their place in the world mm -hmm. and come to terms with the wisdom of what came before. And so, the the point here that I think is completely clear is that the wisdom of culture can't be discarded period sort of right. or it can't be discarded lightly what does because, Peter say clean up your room before you criticize the world something like that yeah basically and uh, i mean the the funny thing about that is that uh, people kind of people kind of make fun of that rule uh, especially in cases where well yeah jordan peterson has a messy room so the the rule <laughs> is invalid right but it just it just misses the entire point because it's it's humility right it's it's like yeah, figure 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 things out for yourself before before going before going outward. Have some humility that others in the world might know something. And there's so much yes. iconoclasm, right? This desire to tear the world apart because some 16 year old from mm -hmm. Sweden knows better than than the entire world about mm -hmm. how the the world economy runs. Just as a random example, yes. you know. No, again, back to just the humility, um, we could approach this a number of ways. One, 
you know, the marketplace, like the present marketplace of people living today, that is sort of the, the culmination of what Peterson calls it, right? A distributed computing system. So it's like the culmination of all of our mind share. You have to assume that the, the market is smarter than you. And now if you start to look at that across time, we're actually looking at the results of marketplace, like an uh, the marketplace for ideas across time that has given rise to these stories, given rise to these institutional structures, et cetera. You have to just, your base assumption has to be all of these people knew more than me because it's you're literally talking about all these minds combined over time wrestling with these problems. Um, so there has to be this humility. You could also approach this from like the Lindy effect standpoint where it's like if something's been around for a long time, you could assume it's going to have a longer life expectancy, which means it has some usefulness to people. And you just have to assume that you know, your view on the world is perhaps so limited that you don't see the deeper purpose or relevance of the thing. Um, but that says more about you than it says about the thing, because you're just a, a limited, finite individual, right? Um, the Taleb has a good saying about this too, that you have to assume where, because nature and evolution kind of has this conservative approach too, right? Which tries to conserve um, certain advancements over time. It says where, where nature says one thing and science says another, you almost have to assume nature is right. It's like nature is, is innocent until proven guilty in a way. And before you can figure out that, you know, you really need to do something differently. So, you know, what the, he gives a million examples, but like, um, I don't know if this is one that he gives, but one that's one that came to mind. It's like breastfeeding versus formula. Right. You should just kind of trust breast milk until you can definitively prove that baby formula is somehow better. And then even when it's quote unquote proven, you have to question the proof because you have to question the motivations of the researchers, whoever's selling or, or purveying the the narrative that it's better. So um yeah, the I mean, what we keep coming back to this theme is like the world is big and complex, irreducibly complex. And the best way to approach it is with a position of humility and a reverence for the limitations of knowledge. Like you have to use knowledge, but you need to understand that knowledge is limited and provisional to use it wisely. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the thing here is this is only one side of this story, right? The, the amazing thing about this, the entire body of stories that we have at our disposal and that we can play with is that every angle really gets covered somehow. And the, the cast of characters we're dealing with here all have a positive and negative aspect, right? Mm -hmm. So the humility on the one hand to say that maybe the collective society knows something better, knows how to do things better. Mm -hmm. okay, that's, that's great. Right. But the unknown still has to be dealt with and the adversary still has to be dealt with. So you do still need heroic individuals mm -hmm. to be able to overcome these things. And I'll take it one step further too. Sometimes the existing order is not fit for purpose. It's either yes. become stale right. and something has kind of taken it over. There's some rot in, in the, the society, uh, the bureaucracy has expanded to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy, something like that. <laughs> or that there, there is some kind of crisis from inside, outside, whatever, and, it, and it's just not up 
to it. Well, reality this, has shifted, as you said earlier. Yes. Yeah. So so here's here's the thing is that is that you still need heroes. Individuals still need to step up and figure out what they're good at and mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Every hero, the knower, the person at the middle here, the, the entire rest of this book, by the way, we're not even halfway. We're not even halfway. The entire rest of this book is about taking all this stuff to the next level, about the knower, the person at the middle of order and chaos, how this person ultimately can change reality and can become the ultimate hero. Mm -hmm. basically there's so much more of this and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper but where we are right now these two stories that we talked about just here say that an individual hero needs to emerge to either subdue chaos from the outside or adversary from the inside right and in that story there's an implication that the existing order did not work. Mm -hmm. Something happened that the existing order did not work. So the wisdom of the past was not sufficient at that mm -hmm. given moment, right? So it's, it's the ability to understand when to do the novel thing, to try something new, to be the hero, to disrupt the existing order mm -hmm. in order to save the world sometimes literally but in whatever level of the story you're in whatever level of world that is then the next phase that the egyptians get into is well go take the parts that were still good mm -hmm. go into the future understanding the parts that deserved to go into the future maybe there's parts you can discard mm -hmm. right maybe some Maybe the important thing is to figure out the bits of knowledge that you don't need anymore, but go take that bit of wisdom back and don't completely leave that because I think we see what happens when, when the world decides that all the wisdom of the past can just right. go in the garbage bin, you know? Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And, um, again, just, a. um, an accurate portrayal of how complex systems work, right? That I'm, I'm reminded here too of the book Leela, which we talked about on the show. He talks about the difference between static and dynamic, right? And he described it as a ratcheting mechanism that <clears throat> every time you take that dynamic step forward, there's a significant risk of failure, right? So you're, you're going to try something new, but 95% of the time it doesn't work, right? This is the hero. The hero. Heroes often die and are killed and eaten by the dragon, whatever it may be. Then you have, if that, if that dynamic step forward fails, well, then it needs, you need to have some latching mechanism so you don't regress all the way to zero. And that's basically the, the static structure, the, the, the wisdom of tradition as is described here. But when you have a successful dynamic step forward, you then want to incorporate those lessons back into the wisdom of tradition and therefore expand the sphere of wisdom itself or the sphere of civilization or society, the structure of order, culture. Um, and so this dynamic is uh, just essential to life, right? It's like literally how life proliferates both um I guess at an, at an individual organism level and collectively. 
And the funny thing here is this, this is the stuff that really makes it hard for me to grapple with the, the parts of the modern libertarian philosophy that goes into, but even you call it anarcho-capitalism, consensualism, mm -hmm. whatever, that's a, that's a part of the mainstream Bitcoin community. The thing about this stuff, what, what Maps of Meaning and all these related stories tell me is that there is a kind of collective and sure. there are other there are other examples other authors that that talk about organization into tribe organization in in collective structures right and i think one of the points here is that there are lessons that individuals can learn and structuring the world in a way that maximizes freedom is a, is a fantastic goal but the collective as a thing a cultural entity at least still exists on that level, even if you get rid of all aspects of something like a state. So that's what kind of leaves me at the point of thinking we still need to deal with collectiveness. Yes. If, yes. if not collectivism, right? I agree. Well, I agree with you completely. This is language. We're going to get tripped up in language here, maybe. The best speaking i think from a liberal classically liberal perspective the best formation for the collective is centered on a philosophy of individualism something like that because you have to be careful here like of course there is a collective right culture is a collective the market is a collective even the state presumably the, let's say government as a collective the state's a different animal um, at least in, in libertarian philosophy. Of course that exists, um, but we have to be very careful that we don't let demagogues use that as a blank check for anything they want to do, right? It's, we need more taxes for the greater good. We need more, print more, to print more money to fix the weather. You know, they start to, they use the greater good or this ephemeral idea of collective benefit um as a carte blanche to basically do whatever they want so that's the danger i think is yes there is a collective but we have to remember that it is definitively composed of individuals and so we need to focus our rulemaking and legal structures and mor moral structures really on individuals you know let's say in the liberal tradition preserving life, liberty, and property of individuals. And that gives rise to the best collective outcomes. Well, and I think, I think these stories are saying something that is, is exactly compatible with that view, basically, mm -hmm. because who gets put at the top of the hierarchy? The individual that does best. Exactly. That's Marduk. Marduk represents the, the merit, pure, meritocracy in the purest sense. That's the Marduk story. Yes. Becoming the top of the hierarchy is only through defeating the dragon of chaos. Yes. Right? And if we put that at the top, the I, the hero, the character that pays attention, right? We put that at the top of our hierarchy, then we cascade that down to every individual, right? Right. If every individual is trying their best to pay attention and to deal with the dragons in their life, deal with the adversaries in their life in the best way possible... Yes. a way that's an exemplar for every other person. I think that's a pretty good world, right? 
Yes. Yes. Again, you know, an entrepreneur led society, right. Rather than a, uh, bureaucrat led society, I think is, is definitely good. Um, yeah. Or to, or to pull this into a, a different, even just a different level. It, it doesn't, and doesn't have to necessarily be entrepreneurs, right? Every individual in their own life has their own struggles and, and, Overcoming those things can be hard. I mean, this is, I, I think, another one of those things that's just plaguing society these days is is a, a lack of meaning. Uh, we we talked to Jeff Booth about this on the Freedom Footprint show a few weeks back, and his whole his whole thing is is that everyone is looking for love and belonging, mm-hmm. and we we make our own reality in in a in a certain way, right? Like the the reality around us is shaped by our actions and our, our perceptions. Right. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, that's, that's just a, a a picture of empathy, right? That every individual is going through something similar Mm -hmm. and finding a way to kind of make, make, um, a blueprint that is an exemplar for everyone to do their best. I mean, I think that just creates a, a better world, you know, that, that if everyone strives to do their best to get meaning out of the world. I mean, I think that's what's important. And what what's difficult about the world today is that it seems like there are people just glued to their TVs, their mm-hmm. smartphones, TikTok, CNN, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and just plugged into some system that is leeching their life energy, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas if we can replace that lack of meaning with an example that works, I think that's the incredible power of stories here is that, I mean, this is what kids identify with, why why mm-hmm. kids enjoy a superhero movie, you know? Yes. Because the stories are, are the same. The Marvel universe is the modern day mythology. Yes. For good or bad. But the, that that's that's why it works, you know. Yeah. And so th- that's that's one of the reasons why I I think this book is so powerful yeah. is that and again we're only about halfway here, but it's so powerful because it gives a blueprint for taking these stories that are all around us and finding some way to get meaning out of it. Yes. Here's what I should do. Yes. Based on what this, this story says, right? If, if I hear the Marduk story or the Horus story, what are the takeaways that I can have out of that? And yeah. I think spreading that knowledge in that way of looking at it, it that's, that's what I want to do with, with this series, with exploring this book. Yeah. Yes. That's what I want to do. No, it's, it's, it's excellent. And if I could just throw something out there that I've been pondering a lot. So I just like to put it out there and see what kind of feedback there is on it obviously the concept of meaning is very important in this book, right? It's helping people discover meaning and uh, what, what did Socrates say? The beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. So I want to talk about what I've been pondering, the meaning of meaning actually. So I think there's sort of three senses that we invoke the word. The first would be what you're describing here. It's like, the big one, right? What is the meaning of life? Probably the biggest question anyone can really ask. Um, and what's your, the sense 
the conceptual sense of meaning you're invoking in a question like that is what is the significance? What is the purpose? Why am I alive? What should I do? You know, like the ethical, moral direction, purpose of your life, something like that. There's another sense of meaning that has a conceptual sense of meaning that has to do with intention, right? If you bump into somebody accidentally, you might be like, oh, I'm excuse me, I didn't mean to do that. Um, or you might say talking about someone like, oh, well, she usually means well when she when she acts that way, even though she might, you know, she's unintentionally maybe bothering someone, but her intentions are pure, something like that. And then there's the third sense of meaning that has to do with just orderly information, right? Like if I compose a sentence that has proper syntax and grammar and spelling, if it's written, well, that makes sense. But if I just give you a sheet of paper with scrambled letters on it, there's no meaning, right? Uh, a tracking number on a package, you swap, you just uh, transpose two characters, right? One letter and one number gets flipped. The whole thing has no meaning. A phone number out of order has no meaning. So I can't help but wonder what is the relationship? Why do, why do we use meaning in all of these senses? And then if we disrupt, you know, the orderly flow of information, does that undermine our capacity to discover significance and purpose in existence? And the, you know, obviously when we print money, we're, 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 disrupting price signals. So this is interrupting the orderly flow of information in the marketplace. I would argue too, that wokeism is like this state sponsored attack on rationality, right? We're trying to confuse basic definitions that is inhibiting rational discourse. It's inhibiting the, the flow of information between minds when you can't define man or woman or whatever basic term is. Um, you know, the postmodern thing of two plus two equals five, obviously that's interrupting very, the very basic orderly flow of information between individuals' minds. And it's giving rise to this kind of nihilistic, meaningless uh, perception of existence. So anyways, it's just a pondering I've had is like the meaning of meaning itself and maybe how these things are connected. And perhaps that's why Bitcoin is actually giving people meaning because it's just this, it's fixing these things, right? It's, it's, uh, giving you orderly flow of information in the pricing system in in theory, like I don't think it's done this much yet, but in the long run, it would remove, it would reduce state revenues, which would reduce the funding for things like wokeism, this this state-sponsored confusion of, of rationality itself. So um, anyways, I think it's something worth thinking about when we're trying to get into the deeper conceptual structure of this book, you really have to dig into the terms themselves. Well, the, the link between those three terms is, is fascinating. And this ties back to, goes back to another point of, uh, from, from last session that, that two things become equated to the same thing if they share similar properties, right? And so the the examples given were something like the the planet Mars is red, therefore it stands for blood, which stands for warfare, etc. Mm. And, and that's sort of a mythological, astrological example. But the that would be, I, I think, one posit on the way that meanings become the same thing, the, or you have a word that has multiple meanings. Mm -hmm. And yeah, really meta here. The word meaning having multiple <laughs> meanings. Yeah, but but in in this case, I think it completely makes sense because at at the heart of it, 
all of these levels of analysis are talking about an order of things that makes sense. And to your point about Bitcoin, I mean, I think this is exactly right. And and you touch upon the the ex- externalities of Bitcoin, right? That you fix price signals, right? But the internal system is also completely predicated on meaning. It's an agreement on a fixed set of rules, like that's right. Like Newt likes to say, and and it's like um, the the thing about it is, if you transpose two digits in a Bitcoin block, it becomes yeah. invalid. Right. You transpose two digits, you get a you get a hash with you you have 18 leading zeros except for one one in there well yes. that's invalid and the blockchain is going to reject it right that's right yeah, so, so it's it's perfecting meaning right like in that third sense it's perfect information basically maybe not per, i don't know perfect's a strong word but the most perfect informational structure we've ever had it's literally as you said invalidating anything that's wrong anything that's meaningless gets ejected from the system yeah, and I mean, I, I think the thing here too is that you can make an argument that gold does the same thing. Mm-hmm. That gold is a is a physical element. Yeah. You can't get uh, a gold molecule without or atom or whatever it is without this exact set of properties, yeah. right? But the difference that Bitcoin makes is that the the ledger also is exactly the same properties, and everyone has to agree on it constantly, yes. right? And, and, and so, but, and then the other point too, about not, not to like make an advocacy for gold here or anything, but it, it does, it does do a lot of these, these same things, except for the imperfection that you have the, the externality of it, that, that, uh, humans can choose to go find more yes. gold, right? Yes. Versus you, you can't do that with, with Bitcoin. The, the rules are baked in that, um, uh, that it's going to have this cap, right? And so the the main thing about bitcoin there is that it just falls under all of these levels of analysis basically the the perfect information and then and then also what it means to the world the effects it has outside is pure meaning it it yeah. just settles the entire system the economic system can just use it as a base right. and that's it there's no more distortions so no maybe not none but none yes. that are caused by the base layer yeah no it's a great point and then Maybe also with that second sense of meaning that it's actually converging intention to outcome, right? If you can control the fruits of your labor, you're more likely to be able to create intended outcomes. Whereas if you can't, then you're probably not, right? If you're getting robbed, your your actions sort of, it becomes more difficult basically to subsist across time. Um, and the other thing about, I think, gold the major bug or flaw is that it is it's physical right we money is not money is such a strange thing because it is one of these it's an agreement as knut would like to say it's just a social agreement a social consensus we have many things like this right the calendar is one that I always like to cite or it's just this imaginary structure that we use to coordinate ourselves across space and time But money needs to be rooted, that imaginary structure needs to be rooted in physical reality so that people don't game the system, right? There's a huge incentive to try and just create money for yourself out of nothing. So if it's not rooted in physical reality, if there's not a proof of work required, then someone's going to game that system, basically. And so we needed, you know, the ideal money basically is something that's non-physical, but somehow rooted in physical reality. And that's what Bitcoin is. Uh, And the other 
the other external, as you mentioned, it's a negative externality of gold because it's physical. It's an invitation to violence, right? It's like, I can just kill you and take your gold. But if I have non-physical digital gold, all of a sudden the, the possibilities of custody open up exponentially and I can store it in a way that, you know, prevents violence from being a useful way of extracting it. I love that explanation. And the, the proof of work thing was actually one of the hardest hurdles that, that I, I had to overcome when, when getting all the way to proper Bitcoin maxi kind of thing. I couldn't understand it for the life of me, why, why it was so important. But then mm -hmm. when you say it like this, it's so simple. It has to still be grounded in physical reality. Yes. Without that, it's meaningless. And, and post Bitcoin, it, it makes complete sense, but I, I can get that it, it's a hard thing for people new to the system to, to understand. And, you know, a thing, a thing here, what, what I'm personally trying to figure out right now is, is not figure out, uh, explain to, to others is why did I come through this maps of meaning track mm -hmm. to get into Bitcoin? And, and I mean, I, I think one part of us going through this book is, is sort of that, the stories and, and everything else that we're covering in here, nowhere is it mentioning, first of all, praxeology, Austrian economics, none of that gets actually touched on. But of course, it's not a Bitcoin book. It came out before Bitcoin yep. existed. It's not really an economics book either in, in any sort of sense. But it does touch on concepts that are reflected. Yes. And something like Bitcoin fits in perfectly mm -hmm. as this stabilizing map. Uh, a map of the world that we can all share. Yes, and we can build a foundation upon that. And yeah, I think I think I'm working on um, bridging this part, this maps of meaning side of things, and uh, trying to take that side into uh, groups of people that I know that aren't into Bitcoin, and and showing here's the path that I took to to get to this great, yeah, perfect for lack of a better term, form of money that I think is going to change the world for the better. And all of my, in, in being, trying to be as humble as possible about that as well, that yes. I've, I've listened to smarter people than me talk about this stuff for <laughs> a long time. Uh, and I hope I'm right, but uh, yeah, yeah, bridging these two worlds, I think is the the thing I want to do as well. Yeah. I, I mean, uh this is just the great thing about being in the digital age is we get to interact with so many smart people and hear such a wide variety of perspectives. And I really feel like a lot of what I'm doing similar to you is like just building bridges, right? You're like, Oh, this guy said this, this guy wrote this, this guy said that like, well, what if I combine these things and add a few pieces and like all of a sudden you get this brand new, interesting idea. Um, we're all just nodes on the network, you might say, which is, um, you know, just another, uh, shout out to Bitcoin, I guess. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. 
MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment routes, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near-zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove today to sign up. On that point, though, and I know we've hit on this theme a lot, that there's some mythology which peterson's going into here and he'll later go into psychology um actually i don't recall if it which order that's in he may have touched on some of the psychology earlier in the book now we're in the mythology yeah he he did the uh base psychology stuff a little bit earlier and that's the part that i'm a little less good at explaining so yeah. we've kind of glossed over it a little but we did touch on it in our in our uh rip from logano but yeah yeah there are Again, unbeknownst to Peterson, because I don't think he's read much Austrian economics, if any, uh, especially by the time he'd written this book, there do seem to be, even though he's writing a book about mythology and psychology, there's a lot of parallels to praxeology, Austrian economics. Um, and that's kind of the reason we're having this conversation, right? So you can actually sort of backdoor your way into Bitcoin, as you did, by going through this... Um, maps of meaning or Jungian psychology or mythology rabbit hole. And you can kind of fall into Bitcoin backwards, which is interesting. There's one excerpt here that I think sort of captures this on page 101. Peterson writes, the territory of explored territory is defined at least in general by security. Secure territory is that, is that place where we know how to act. Knowing how to act means being sure that our current actions will produce the results desired in the future. Back to that intentionality thing, right? It's like, what? how can I turn my intentions into outcomes, right? You, that's where meaning is strong. The effective significance of the phenomena that comprise explored territory have been mapped. This map takes the form of the story, which describes the valence of present occurrences, the form of the desired future, and the means that might serve usefully to transform the former into the latter. It's a restatement of the axiom of action, basically, right? It's like man is in, in uh, the unfelt easiness of the present. He identifies some future state that is more desirable. He selects means 
to purposefully pursue those ends and therefore man must act, right? And it's an axiom because if you try to argue against the axiom of action, mounting a counter-argument to the axiom of action is using the means of counter-argument to toward the end of refuting the axiom of action. So it's like, it's this irrefutable thing that we must do and we are always doing. And it's a it's just so fascinating to see two different brilliant minds totally disconnected like Mises and Peterson arriving kind of at the same thing. It's like the world is a form for action. Here's how it's structured. Um, and here are the stories that that tell us about it. Although the stories thing is interesting because like Peterson's saying, oh, here's these old stories that tell us how to act. Mises is saying something quite different. It's like, here's this scientific rationally deduced uh theorems about how we act that we that we can construct a theoretical lens through which to properly interpret history and so i don't know they're very complementary in a way even though there's a lot of parallels and the funny thing about it is that the term a priori comes up a whole bunch in in this book it, that that the a priori axioms of of praxeology austrian economics all this that's not what he meant at all, but he, but he still is getting at the first principles of it. Yes. Exactly. It's, right. it's the, and, and the, I think the, the entire point of this book is actually to say that this is all grounded in first principles stuff. It's just how did humanity understand that? And how do we as individuals understand this stuff? Because the points that get into the neurochemistry of this, right? where it explains that that we as humans are adapted to dealing with this stuff down to a literal distinction between half of the brain is good at order stuff half of the brain is good at chaos stuff right like that part is just saying this is grounded in reality to the base level mm -hmm. and i don't think my interpretation of this book isn't to say that we have to learn this stuff through stories it's just that saying that through these stories, we can understand and interpret this stuff in a, a, a way that resonates. Yes. And then, and then taking it into the level of the praxeology of it all, yes. where we build this up from first principles, that yes. becomes entirely compatible with it. So we take, it's not bottom up and top down, but it's more like, coming at it from both sides these these things exactly work together and make sense it's 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 one of those forms of truth that makes sense in all the levels of 100%. truth yes so that's how we that's how we see that that this stuff is probably worth paying attention to probably <laughs> right if it's i would call it something like mythology acting as the scaffolding which gets us to praxeology right you're not going to have rationalism and you know the axiom of action and all of the the theorems that are deduced from that and the other economic axioms i don't think you're going to have any of that without mythology because it's like people needed to we needed to learn to point all of our action in one direction you know that's what god was right god was like this unifying principle in a society or you know you had to entrain people to collaborate and cooperate over time to build up the capital stock necessary to give someone the leisure time like Mises to sit around and think 
to produce something like praxeology. And he had to draw on obviously lessons of his predecessors. So it's this, again, that, that iterative uh, cumulative process of knowledge gathering, accretion, collection, whatever you want to call it, that he was uh, a hero on that journey, basically, right? It's like, oh, here's the 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 wisdom of tradition, the bomb bowerks, bomb I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, and the others that came before Mises. He's absorbing their lessons. He's exploring a little bit more uncertainty, incorporating what he learns, and then boom, passes forward human action and other other tomes of wisdom. Um, I don't think you would ever have people that ordered and that peaceful without these stories. So this is like, again, the talking about the bootstrapping of human cognition or human civilization, it is inexorably bound to these ancient stories. Yeah. And to, to take this on a personal level, the, the thing about this stuff, the, the, your, your point makes, makes complete sense here that that this stuff enabled all of this but back down to the the micro level for for me personally what these stories meant to me was that here is a way of making sense of the world that isn't dependent on any one specific religion or mm-hmm. but but it's it it gave me the scaffolding as as you put mm-hmm. it that religion would have it this this took the place of religion for me. And I, I mean this in a positive sense. I don't mean that I started to worship Marduk or anything yeah. funny like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I think there are people out there, but uh, yeah. you know, lots yeah. lots of uh, interesting people out there. But yeah. but, the, but the thing was, is that in, instead, of, instead of having um, a purely Christian worldview, which I, for various reasons, couldn't come to terms with, I could then still appreciate the stories of Christianity, mm-hmm. what they were telling me, because I paid attention to everything that Peterson put out. And I mean, I, I really wish there was kind of a name for for what this is. I uh, think uh, the word that's coming up for me is consilience, right? If you if you see a thing, it's a certain degree of real. If you can see a thing and smell a thing, well, then it's a little more real. If you can see the thing, smell the thing, touch the thing, well, it's a little more real. So there's this idea that the more levels of analysis that tell you the same thing, the more true it becomes. And that's what Peterson's work did for me. It's like I had sort of discarded religion. It's like, oh, it's just fairy tales for adults as a teenager. But then when he started to explain religion broadly, Christianity more specifically through this conciliatory lens. It's like, oh, well, look at Carl Jung's psychology. Look at distributed systems over here. Look at physics. Look at, you know, the work of Nietzsche. Just approaching it from many different perspectives. And they're all sort of, indic- there's this, there's some underlying concept that seems to be common among these multiple perspectives on religion and then across religions themselves that validated religion for me. It's like, oh, this is something important, right? And it's not, I didn't start to worship Marduk either, but I definitely took an interest. Like I wanted to start reading the Bible. I wanted to start reading other religious texts and like seeing um, for myself what's in there, right? Start to develop a relationship with the text and see what wisdom you can glean from it. And that's the whole point is that actually gleaning something from it, taking 
taking what these things are saying and applying it to your real life. I think that's what becomes important. There's another passage here. I, I wouldn't be able to find exactly the page it's on, but it, it's it's something about how when children are growing up, imitation is the best form of learning. And mm -hmm. by seeing the way the people around them act, children learn so much, right? Mm -hmm. So the stories that the parents are acting out is what the children will learn. That's right. And therefore, the stories that are told to them as well in, in books, in movies, in whatever, that's how the children, how, how children learn. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think a part of reading this stuff and trying to appreciate it, dig more into religion, is to do the same form of essentially imitation. Mm -hmm. is to to imitate the stories in your head mm -hmm. right the prefrontal cortex is basically a big scenario playing out machine so that mm -hmm. that something in your head can go and play the story and you don't have to physically go do the things right, right. for sure and so by 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 internalizing this stuff right we can go learn the lessons by playing it out narratively. Yes. Imitate in your head, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what you get out of that is some kind of lesson and some kind of change to the way you live or yes. the reinforcement that you're on the right track. But with, with all humility, no one is ever exactly on the right track. We sure. talked about this, I think, the first time, the concept of missing the mark. So again, this is just why this stuff is, is important to me and, and what I got out of it personally. No, it's an excellent point. You know, that it does come down to how does this, how does this change action? And a lot of it is through imitation. And it's, it's, again, when you're dealing with a complex reality, it is impossible to have a codified set of responses, right? Oh, in this situation, do this. In this situation, do that. It's like, because situations are infinitely complex and variable. The best you can have are heuristics, right? Like rules of thumb, you know, not something, not, it's a knowledge that can't be explicitly codified. And I think that's what mythology is doing, right? Like there's a moral to the story. It's not saying in this situation, do that. It's not a hard and fast um, prescription, but it will tell you like, okay, look at these circumstances. Here's how this individual responded. You know, here's the moral orientation they took to the situation and here's the outcome. And so you can take those patterns and use them to guide your own action in your life. And so it's not just a fairy tale, right? It's a very pragmatic, very pragmatic use for mythology. And I, I guess we've probably beaten that horse to death at this point, but <laughs> um, I don't think you can say it too much. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. And may, maybe we should just uh, summarize the the chapter a little bit. And I, and I won't even like really, we've summarized it, I think pretty well, but uh, just to tie a bow on what this, this little chapter has little, what mm -hmm. this chapter has, has been saying, basically like uh, it's introduced the concepts of, characters representing the known the unknown the hero and then the chaos that lies outside of that mm -hmm. both aspects have a positive and a negative element all of them 
And so what that leaves you with is the great father, the the positive aspect of the the known uh, order that's doing itself that, that that's going well. On the other hand, you have tyranny, mm-hmm. order that has become tyrannical, so the positive and negative. Then in chaos, you have the great mother, the symbol the symbol of creation on the good side, but destruction on the bad. You have the hero, which has the potential to do good, but also the potential to be the adversary. So you have the hero and the adversary on the one side there. And then finally, outside of that, there's this dragon of chaos that represents everything that is unknown and unknowable, basically. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. these are the basic elements. And then you have the hero going out intentionally into chaos and into the unknown in order to take care of some situation that needs to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. The Marduk story is somewhat straightforward. Uh, it just defeats the dragon of chaos and becomes the top god mm-hmm. as a result. And the Egyptian story adds a layer of nuance where the wisdom of the of the culture is added to the new information from the hero mm-hmm. and they go into the future together. Mm-hmm. So some great stuff. And uh, I think moving forward into the book, it's getting into some deepening of this stuff and mm-hmm. some exploring of what the map means basically. Yes. So I think I, to me, this is like the, the core chapter of the, of the book basically, but everything beyond this just deepens uh, and builds on, on these topics. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited because my, the end of the book is my favorite actually. Um, it was just occurring to me as you were describing that, that maybe the difference between the Mesopotamian creation myth and the Egyptian myth we explore today is the Mesopotamian is perhaps intended to be an actual creation myth, right? Where Marduk, the hero, slays Tiamat, Chaos, cuts her into pieces and builds the world out of her, right? So that, to me, uh, echoes of rationality, right? You're taking fluid, complex world, slicing it into discrete pieces, into discernible components, right? with language and mathematics, and you're actually constructing these cultures. The uh, story of, uh, it's Osiris, right? That that was the son. Horus is the the son, Osiris the father. Horus is the son, Osiris is the father. It's like Osiris has, has done that, what Marduk did in the past. He's already built a culture, right? But because he's, dead or dying his son is living the son needs to continually go out into the unknown incorporate new information and revivify that culture so it's like the continuation of the mesopotamian myth whereas the mesopotamian myth is like maybe the original um the origination point of human rationality something like that i love it and yeah the the um, more like the egyptian one can be done on a loop right the mm-hmm. mesopotamian one sort of has to it has to start from the very beginning and run right. once. Exactly. But the Egyptian one can can run continuously. Zero to one, one to many, something like that. Totally. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation as always, and we will continue. Um, I don't know where we're going next. Do you have any comments on that? 
Well, where, where we're going next is kind of the, the building blocks of these maps, getting more into that concept. And uh, yeah, that's the chapters three and four of the, the book, basically. And uh, yeah, digging more into these concepts, uh, some some topics of uh, the sacred and the profane and the, the world tree at the middle. Uh, fascinating stuff uh, to come. So I'm looking forward to it as well. Awesome. Really enjoyed this conversation as well, Rob. Uh, really, yeah, good time. Same here and looking forward to the next one. Likewise.